Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 745th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today's episode is a replay of our monthly segment on Rosie on the House. Today, we're talking about desert edibles with Peggy Sue Sorensen and Mike Clow. Enjoy. Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Farm living is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Wrapping up this month of May, the last Saturday of the month, we have Farmer Greg joining us. As always, Farmer Greg, we're talking native edibles, and you've got some incredible guests that you brought with you today. Oh, yes, yes, I do. Peggy Sue and Mike, they are with Desert Kitchen, and they're amazing when it comes to understanding what we can eat in the desert. A great topic, and it fits right in with native edibles and you've peggy sue you've brought in quite a a collection here with your picnic basket yes i love to show and tell and allow people to see the plants that you pick and then some things that you can do with them so i'll give you a a few things to taste let's this one right here let's start with that one they've got a little leaf garnish on it okay so i brought palaverde blue palaverde pods with beans that you can open and eat. They're ripe right now. This is a current event. I ate some this morning, and they were delicious off of one of our trees. And this just came right out of your native landscape Oh, yard. yeah. And any, they're all over the valley. Any Palo Verde will have these. So this one's a blue, but any Palo Verde right now will have them. The foothills are coming next, shortly behind. In about a week or two. Wonderful. Those are the two main kinds. And they, they taste like edamame, don't they? They do. I would have to know what edamame tastes like to know if I compared how it compares to it, but it tastes fine to me. It yeah. tastes like a bean. It's, yes. it's a pretty yeah. sweet bean, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. It's on the sweet side for a bean to me, anyway. So let's let's dive right in. We're actually starting off today with the talking about mesquites because those are coming to to harvest, basically. Yeah, you've got Mount awesome. Olive mesquite beans here. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, you recycled, the pickle, jar. you recycled have, the pickle, pickle jar. You recycled the pickle jar. I got it. With mesquite beans, yes. We have our annual mesquite bean milling coming up that Don Titmus and I started, oh, about 15 years ago. And about five years ago, we bought a mesquite bean mill. They're not cheap. They're about $15,000. And so it's an annual event that we put on where we teach people how to harvest. And we do that in two ways. We have classes that people can take online, which Peggy, Sue, and Mike are gonna be teaching here in the next few weeks. And and then we do walkabouts where people actually go to a place here in the valley and they walk about with one of our crew members and talk about how to harvest beans and then you harvest beans. And what do you do with the bean once you harvest it? Peggy? That's what we're going to explain There's a process. First, you harvest it properly, and that's from the tree and not from the ground. So it's best to lay a tarp down, and then you you can, if you can reach the limbs, 
you can pull the pods right off. Or if it's too high, you can take a stick and knock them off. If they're dry, they'll fall off onto the tarp. Leave the beans that are on the ground on the ground. Put the tarp down and then only gather exactly. the new ones that come off the tree. Now, what what's wrong with the ones on the ground? Well, there's a something called aflatoxin. It's a, a mold byproduct that is in the soil. And with high heat and humidity, that increases and it can become an issue or potentially could become an issue. So it's just good harvesting practice. And aflatoxin is not unique to mesquites by any means. This is a big issue for all kinds of beans, especially peanuts. peanuts. Um, corn. In the agricultural industry, they are always testing for it, making sure that they don't get it into the, our food stream. And so we do the same thing with the mesquites. We just are aware of how to avoid it and how to be smart. And it's not a nice thing, but it's something you simply avoid and the problem is solved. And we do it every day when we eat peanuts. And the average <laughs> healthy person, it's not a problem. If you eat it every day and you have, if your health is compromised, then perhaps that would be a problem. So if you're elderly or I wouldn't give my little someone who's who's not there's plenty of mesquite trees and each tree produces plenty of pods so that's an understatement just just don't even worry about what's on the ground what's on the ground so we're on the site we spread out a tarp we've knocked down what we can by hand get a Mm -hmm. stick shake the branches however you can Okay, and and we did miss a step. So before you want to harvest from a tree, you want to make sure that tree, that the pods taste good. Not every tree, even if they were all planted at the same time, there are different levels of sweetness, and you may get one that just might have a little bad aftertaste. So I like to harvest the sweetest pods. So what you do is you pick a pod and you break it, and put it in your mouth and suck on it and then lightly chew the pod to taste the flavor of the pulp around the bean. It's, you're not actually eating the bean. Okay. And would you like to taste it? Sure. Here you go. And we are talking about the brown dried beans. The green beans are not ready. So we're looking for them to be brown and dry and snappy. Yeah, the green beans are not ripe. I've, I, I don't eat it that way. I wait. I, this is the right way to eat it. Okay. But when so, you chew on it, you do get a real interesting flavor. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I will save the chewing for the break. I've just been sure. sucking on it now, and it does have a, a, a very edible flavor now. So here's some flour that I brought so you can taste it a little and bit better. This is what happens when it gets from... You grind it up. You take it to the mill. From here to the mill. Now, are we missing any steps? We have the tree. We're going to put a tarp down. We knock the tarp off. We collect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then then what? Just take them straight to the mill? or? No, there is a process. You want to, first of all, just go lay them out and pick through any green pods that might have come off the tree and any stems or leaves. Remove those. And then you want to dry the beans so you can dehydrate them you can put them in the oven on let's say 300 for approximately 30 minutes but you every oven is different so keep an eye on it and check them maybe every 10 or 15 minutes and when they're completely dry then you can store them in a food grade bucket save it for the milling so i've got all these bean pods there Mm -hmm. have been collected through, baked out. Now, 
Am I saving them inside the casing like this, or do I have to break the casing? No, you cannot. Oh. These beans, there's a technical term, I think it's inahescent or something along those lines, that these are inseparable. When you are milling this thing, you're going to mill the pod and the beans together. Okay. And the flavor, the protein, everything about it is, is in both together. And this is one reason we need that hammer mill. These things are, are hard, they're inseparable, and we need that hammer mill to, to do it. Is this why it costs $15,000, Farmer <sighs> Greg? Yeah, exactly. The thing sits on a trailer, and it's about a 20-foot-long trailer, and when it's fully assembled, it stands about 15 feet tall. So it's now, pretty epic, actually. And folks ask all the time, can I just put these in my grain mill? Because I make flour all the time from wheat, oats, whatever, and the answer is no. And the reason is what makes these beans so great is good old sugar. This, these beans are full of sugar. You can it, taste it. It, it. When I tasted that spoonful that you gave me just a moment ago, I thought in my mind, like, brown sugar added to Brown this. sugar, that's exactly <laughs> it. It has been added by the tree. <laughs> these things are full of sugar. That's why people love them. They love them for the same reason they love anything that's sweet. These are delicious because of the sugar. So you put these in a stone mill, and your stone is gummed up in seconds. You're going to be very sorry if you do that. So do not put them in a stone mill. You can put them in herb mills and, and things like that, but for the most part, the hammer mill is the way to get the job done. And since Greg fortunately provides that to the city, we have a way to, to do it. Which was my next point. Instead of going out and buying my own $15,000 grain mill, I just bring these pod beans, these mesquite beans, and buckets already prepared, dried out, cooked, just you'd gone through. And I bring them to Farmer Greg's hammer mill, and y'all ground them up there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. We have a whole team set up. It'll be the last day of June, June 30th and July 1st. We do it over a course of two days. And people can set up an appointment on our website. And we do charge. We charge for the finished flour. There's a fee per pound but it's nominal and just helps pay for the insurance and that kind of stuff. On the time for the people to be there, the mill itself, it obviously has an expense, but if I go out and collect, let's say, two five-gallon buckets full of mesquite, beans, and pods, how much flour will that produce on the back end? Or do you all have any kind of it, ratio scale to, to judge by? It'll be several pounds. If you had two five-gallon buckets, you'd be good for a chunk of the year in terms of baking up some nice goodies with them. And when you yeah. said a tree has a plethora of pods, being an understatement, one tree you could easily and fill up more than a five-gallon bucket if yeah. you found the right mature tree. And when I'm talking about understatement, I'm thinking about the fact that if you looked at all the mesquites in Arizona, we could live off this stuff. We <laughs> mean Phoenix. This food was the staple food for the people basically from the Pacific coast to the Gulf of Mexico. This is, an in, this is a staple food, and there is a lot of it out there, and we we can really enjoy this stuff because it's so darn good tasting but yeah, people that's have why we want to spread the word we appreciate you joining us this saturday talking native edibles and we're starting with the mesquite bean pod that are coming into harvest we've got a few more talking points to hit on the, the mesquite bean harvesting but we're also going to be talking about palo verde beans ironwood beans prickly pear fruits fruit choya Cat, barrel cactus. There's a lot out there that is in our desert kitchen. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is the desert kitchen. We'll be back with Farmer Greg and his guests of thedesertkitchen.net right after this. Continuing our conversation in the Outdoor Living Hour on native edibles. Farmer Greg with Urban Farm. Where would people find out about this 
mesquite milling event coming up. You had mentioned they could register ahead of time. How does somebody get proactive in that? Very good. So if you go to urbanfarmevents.com, that will take you to our calendar page at Urban Farm. And what you'll see there next month, so you'll have to flip into June, but you'll see two classes that are online. They're on Zoom with Peggy Sue Mike and Don Titmus and Janice. And they'll be educating people on how to actually go out into your yard and, and harvest beans and process them and get them ready to be pro- milled. And then we have the three walkabouts on two different Saturdays where you can meet Peggy Sue, Mike, Don, Janice at different parts of town to actually go and harvest beans and learn how to do that. So urbanfarmevents.com. And these are properties that y'all have permission to go gather. Oh, yes. One's Granada Park, one's Rio Rio Salado Park in Tempe, and then there's a park out in West Phoenix and and Peoria that we that we have been harvesting for for years actually. And Peggy, so when I'm looking at this bean, it's got a bunch of holes in it. Do I need to throw this one out? No, actually, shortly after the pod ripens, this what's called a brooked beetle drills a hole and it comes out. These are beetles that were put in the the eggs were put in when it was a flower. In other words, this is not a hole where something drills in. This is a hole where something's drilled out. So Ooh. you're happy to see that it's left and you don't have that extra protein in your bean. But it's not uncommon. <laughs> but yeah, they're not a problem. There's nothing in there. It means something If you it see something, something flying around, if you bring them in your house, they may fly around a little bit and they go to the window and they don't last very long. They're not a real pest. This is a very high protein bean. The beans themselves are among the highest protein beans there are. They're like 40%. It's outrageous. The When you mix it in with the pod, which is what we have to do, it brings the whole thing down to 20-some percent. But it's, it's, this is a high-protein flour, which, again, is why it's so good for us and such a good actual staple food. And that's why you want to have it milled at with a hammer mill to get that seed, to get the protein out. It's... It can sustain life. What's happening is when you bring your beans in, they're dry, they snap. So you know they're dry enough if you break them in half and they snap. And just to clarify, we're milling the husk of the bean as well as the bean itself or the protein in the beans. Yeah, the sweetness is in the pulp. So that's a big part of the the outside and the seed are or the seed encasing is sifted out. And once I have this mesquite flour and I'm taking it home, mm-hmm. what do I do with it? Well, it's a gluten-free flour, and you could use it in place of any almond, coconut flour, or any recipe that you have with wheat flour. You can replace one-fourth or one-third of a cup of regular flour with mesquite flour and just give it a try and experiment. There's a number of good resources. There's a book that comes out of a group in Tucson called Desert Harvesters called Eat Mesquite and More. That's probably the most famous of the mesquite cookbook recipe books. But you can just use it for any gluten-free flour. Most people, many people, will tell you you can't cook with or can't bake with 100% mesquite flour. I can tell you that that is not true. You can do it. It takes a little extra effort. You've got to cook it low and slow. 
but this is a very nice gluten-free flour with extra sweetener in it. You can literally reduce the sugar in your recipe. You can literally cut it to half or even go, a lot of times I'll bake with things like applesauce to where I can have a no sugar added recipe. This is so sweet. And that's that's one of the big rewards here. You get a flour that allows you to reduce the sugar that you're adding in. Can you give me your top three recipes off the top of I, your head? I can give you the recipe of what I made. Okay. It's a mesquite ball. Okay. And it's really simple. I mix equal parts mesquite flour with peanut butter or any nut butter. And then I add just a touch of honey because it's a good binder. I didn't do it today, but I you can roll it in more mesquite flour or in cacao or carob flour, sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, anything. and Or even these seeds right here that I brought <laughs> that I'll be telling you about. The main, so it makes a, a nice, simple treat. The main product that people make with this, you'll see it done around, is mesquite pancakes. This is a nice-tasting pancake. Another way to equate this flavor or understand this flavor is people think it tastes a little like graham crackers. So think of a graham cracker-flavored pancake. A graham cracker pancake. And I'll tell you, a mesquite with chocolate chip... With prickly pear syrup on it. Exactly. exactly. You are quite correct. And a chocolate chip cookie made with this is a wondrous thing. People want that. As soon as they have it, they want more. This is a great chocolate chip cookie base. That's what he likes to bake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and eat a lot. I really liked that mesquite ball. And I'm a sucker for anything with peanut butter in it to begin with. But mm-hmm. that's just peanut butter, mesquite flour, and a little honey for binding. That's just yes. three that's ingredients. It. That's it. Roll it up into a ball. You can dust it in things like cinnamon sugar, all kinds of stuff. You can do all kinds of fun stuff, chocolate chips, whatever. Very good. We've got the desertkitchen.net. Peggy Sue and Mike joining us in studio with Farmer Greg talking native edibles here at Rosie on the House. We've been covering primarily the mesquite pod bean because that is coming into harvest and you can get more details about when and where to take your mesquite pods at urbanfarmevent.com. It's just a two-day event, so make sure you sign up ahead of time when we get back. More native edibles here with Farmer Greg. on the house. We've been talking with Farmer Greg on Native Edibles, and he's got guests in studio with us today, Peggy Sue and Mike of the DesertKitchen.net. We've been talking about gathering and harvesting mesquite beans and pods to make mesquite flour. We've got a lot of other edibles to talk about, but before we jump off onto some of the smaller ones, you guys want to finish the other edible trees before we moved on. Sure. There are a lot of edible trees, and not all of them are native. People don't even realize, just for example, there are carob trees that grow here in the valley, olive trees, oak trees. You can actually eat acorns. You just have to process them. But for the natives, there's Palo Verde and ironwood trees. And they both produce beans, and they're really quite good. And like the blue Palo Verdes that I brought today, they're tender, they're tasty, kind of buttery. And you open up the pod, take them out. Just like a regular bean pod. Or you could boil them in salt water and just eat them like edamame, which, you know, it's easy to just, they pop right out of the pod. And I guess that kind of answered a question I was going to ask. Could I take mesquite? and ironwood and Palo Verde all together 
and get it milled at once, but it sounds like the iron wood you have to separate, so that would be a, They're very a no different. on that one. They're very different, because with the Palo Verde, we're talking about a normal, quote-unquote, being in a pod versus the mesquite is very unusual with this being in pod together and all this sugar and a very different flavor. So you would handle these separately. They're okay. very different foods. Do they ripe separately? Yes. Okay. They're all in this summertime season. But the thing to to be aware of that's a bit of a surprise to most folks, you look out across the desert, picture a Sonoran desert scene looking out across. There are all these trees. They're all legumes. These are all bean trees. Because when you look out across the desert, you're seeing mesquites and Palo Verdes and Ironwoods. You're seeing bean trees. This desert is covered in beans. And people don't realize it. It's they're all bean trees. And it's really my desire to inform people so they're aware if there's a reason there isn't food around, they're not walking on their pods, on the bean pods, saying, I'm hungry. When you're walking on your food. <laughs> or, now, out of curiosity, is there a place I can just go buy it without doing all the harvesting side of it? Does anybody? Yes. Mesquite flour is available at Whole Foods and others. However, an interesting point about that is most of that is imported from South America, and their mesquites are not as good as our mesquites. They, they actually we have don't the good taste stuff. good at all. People don't, we they'll the say <laughs> they'd like it, but then I let them taste a native mesquite, and they are amazed how much better it tastes. And let's move on to some of the other things. We talked about dusting the top of a mesquite pancake with some prickly pear jelly. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> prickly pears, they do produce really nice fruit. You have to harvest them with tongs because they have glockids, which are little hairs that get into your skin and it can be very irritating. Harvest carefully, gather, and it's best just to wash them off while they're in the bucket, give them a good rinse, and then what I learned from Greg was to put them into a gallon jar, like a glass jar, and stick them in the freezer. And when they thaw, you have half the jar full of juice. And then you strain out the seeds and the the skin. For the most part, with prickly pears, the juice is what you're after. And then you take that juice and you make your jellies, your syrups, your all kinds of stuff. And Farmer Greg, that's the pear fruit separates itself by freezing it? Is that what? Yeah. What I've found, so those little glockids, those little gnarly thorns, you don't want to get into those. And what I found was that by freezing the prickly pears, first of all, it explodes the cells inside the prickly pear so that when it thaws, it goes to mush. So it makes it a whole lot easier to get the juice from. Plus, interestingly, those glockids go away when you freeze. Mm-hmm. They basically dissolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and it- prickly pears prickly pears were the first thing that I ever harvested out of the desert. In the mid-70s, we used to go to Cole's Ranch every summer and mom figured out that we could stop on the way back from Cole's Ranch and get a bucket of them and make this really cool color juice that tasted great. So I've been harvesting prickly pears for decades and interestingly enough on the road the other day here in North Carolina I was driving along the road and I saw a prickly pear cactus wow. that had fruit on it. Wow. So I actually went and knocked on the owner's door the other day and asked if I could take a couple of pads and I'm gonna make my own prickly pears. (laughs) Nice, nice. 
Prickly pears are the best known, I think, of all the Arizona desert foods because prickly pear jelly is in every store practically in one form or another. Yep. And the thing that people don't know, though, is the health benefits of this are really significant. This thing is packed with antioxidants. It's packed with flavones. It is glycemic regulating in Mexico. It is prescribed by mainstream medicine for diabetic scenarios. It's good for cholesterol regulation. If you have prickly pear pads I'm talking about now in the morning, you can uh, you can really reduce your cholesterol. This is an amazingly healthy food, both the pads and the fruits. And I was going to mention the pads because you, you said prickly pear jelly. You can find that in almost any grocery store. Occasionally, you see that the pad, the cactus pad Absolutely. itself. Yeah, they is, call them nopales in the in the Hispanic tradition, and, and you'll find them in Food City and such. And that's a good – you slice them up and saute them and serve them with some steak, and it's good, good food, mm. just green, good food. So that's the whole prickly pear cactus. It's the fruit and the petal. But the fruit itself has a blooming season. Can you harvest and eat the pad at any time? It's best when the pads – first develop so when they're smaller than your hand they don't have as many glockets and thorns on them and it's not as fibrous inside that's the way i like the soft new pads Mm -hmm. are the best okay and they can get year-round but there are certain times when there are more of them when you break off a pad then it will grow another one Mm -hmm. and so you can keep keep it going that's what greg was saying he's just going to take a pad stick it in the ground and he's going to have a prickly pear plant yeah Mm -hmm. And then the next thing that we want to talk about on our list is saguaro. And I have to tell you, I learned to eat saguaro fruit about 20 years ago. And this is the fruit of the gods. Oh, this is the best (laughs) stuff in the desert. It is. Oh, you brought some to them, Peggy? (laughs) Yes. I did. Oh, my gosh. Romy, this is the best. It it looks a little funny. Tell us about it, Mike. It looks a little funny, but this is the best tasting fruit. I, I never knew about this. This People don't know about this. But you take a bite of this and you'll be like, wow, this is candy. It's like a kind of a dried fruit roll up with poppy seeds in it. It's got zillions of these seeds. These tiny, tiny seeds will grow into giant saguaros, and you can actually plant some of those. But, yeah, this is candy, and it falls off the cactus on its own. But if you want to harvest it, Peggy can tell you all about harvesting it. Okay, so I, what I do is I take like a 22-foot extension painting pole and I a have roller a, extension a yeah. roller extension yeah I put a, this roller on the end of it and knock them down and have someone with a fishing net catch them and that's become I'm perfecting this so <laughs> <laughs> you get out early in the morning before you know it gets too hot and the sun's in your eyes and because they come to bloom right the hottest time of the year absolutely Everything good. They, they is bloom white in the middle of the summer. Then there'll be a green bud where the bloom was, and then it'll split open. And when it splits open, the inside is red. So when you see the red, that means you want that harvest time. And all the birds want it. All the mice want it. All the rodents want it. All the reptiles want it. Every every animal in the desert wants this stuff. And they used all to the harvest it. All the humans want it. Absolutely. Once you taste it, you'll be like, yeah, I want more. But they used to use the poles made from the saguaro ribs back in the indigenous days and now we have other kinds of poles but this is some work you got to go to to get up there but my gosh it's worth it and what you get just gave us to eat that was just straight from the saguaro no absolutely nothing made nothing Not, nothing down afterwards i was that's just the, that's what comes out of the, the plant very interesting i I've, I've never had that before most people haven't 
And saguaros are a protected plant. The, that flower is our state flower. Are there any regulations you have to be aware of if you're going and harvesting these out in the wild? Harvest for personal purposes is is basically legal anywhere. It's the same old thing as anything private property. Off of BLM, mm-hmm. Bureau of Land Management. Just so long as you're not using like tree spikes to climb up the soil. Never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or if you're doing commercial, that's obviously different. Um, that's why we and you use can't long obviously pole. harvest anything in the national parks or national monuments. But generally speaking, it's not a problem. But private property, if you know someone with a saguaro, that's probably best. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And then we've got the next one down, choya buds. Yes. Oh now, um, now, choya is, people that know choya think, you know, very bad. It's, this oh, yeah. is the nasty Scary. cactus. Scary. There's the teddy bear cactus that, I, I'll tell you about that first. They're the ones that are called jumping cactus, and they can stick in you, and you really need to be careful. Much and, pain. Because you can't grab it and take it off. It'll just keep. It's like a porcupine. It is. But that is actually edible. And most people do not know that. And you can... (laughs) This is a good food for shock value. You can say, oh, yeah, I was munching on a choya the other day, and people are going to say, wait, what? Okay, so I'm almost one of the only people who have eaten a choya, but I'm introducing people to this. So I put it on the grill and just burn off... The, all of the thorns and blockheads and inside it's just this moist cucumber hmm. yeah it's good so you should never starve when you're walking across the desert it's, they're out there but then the choya buds are from a little bit different type of choya and you you harvest those the first two weeks of april and you process them very similar to prickly pear fruit That's take the them st- off with tongs and you can actually i burn the glockets off and then i boil it for 10 minutes that's the staghorn choya it's a skinnier one not as dangerous mm-hmm. but just as ever much annoying if you get stuck with it <laughs> it's not I think that bad you don't get stuck with those much it, it, they're 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 strong but they're not out to get you like the jumping ones are. <laughs> like the, the teddy bear one? Yeah, yeah. And they say jumping. A lot of people say it's heat-seeking, but they're really not. They're not, just... not they, it seems like you walk by and it grabs you, but if you just touch the tiniest bit of it, it'll swing around and get you. And, like, the very point of it, it's got a reverse bar, so, it, like, when it pulls your skin, it actually hooks it. Oh, the micro deploy then, into your flesh. And then there's so many Pain. thousands of them. Oh if you get God. one on it, you got 10. If you got 10, you got 100. Pain so is unimaginable. They say it's jumping, but it, there's nothing about it that nothing. knows your presence. Nothing. It's just nothing. If, if, if you touch it, though, you know it's it. designed to get you, but it can't move. I mentioned it as we started the broadcast. We always have a choice on what bullet points to hit and not hit as we wrap up the segment. Farmer Greg, on your native edibles, where do you want to focus from here as we wind down the final segment? There are a bunch of little things that we may not have even thought about. Wolfberries is one of them, and you may have seen those in the grocery store marketed as something else. What do they call them? Goji berries? That's the same family. Isn't that right, Peggy? That's right. What kind of plant does that come off of? It's a shrub. And where do I find those in the desert? In washes, up against the foothills? Where do I find a shrub that has a wolfberry on it? They're fairly evenly distributed. They bear more fruit farther north and at the higher altitudes. Some of these, like washes, like mesquites, 
and Palo Verdes, but these are ones you'll find uh, randomly scattered. And then we've got, what's a desert devil's claw? It's this plant that produces a wicked claw-like fruit when it's dried, but when it's young, let's say one and a half to three inches long, I like to just put it in pickle juice. And when they dry up, they have seeds inside that are a little like sunflower seeds. And they're strange looking. They have a big picture two supersized fishing hooks, really supersized, three or four inches long, next to each other at an angle. And there, you look at that, and you're like, "Wow, is that an alien plant?" And they're they're designed to hook onto the hoof of a traveling like cow or deer or whatever. And they're really good at their job. You'll be out hiking, and you'll look down, and one will be hooked on your ankle, and you won't even know it. And you will have spread its seeds for miles. They're really good at their jobs. And I have picked up numerous of those on the heel or top of the shoe yep. or around the calf. The they're designed knee. specifically yes. for that, and they do it well. And they hang. Yeah, interesting. I, did not know what that plant was. So how do I eat that plant? At the point it's attached to my leg, I would assume it's probably too late. Oh, you could only eat the seeds. Okay. So the seeds you have to open it up like a sunflower seed. It has a coating, so you eat inside. Very cool. There's a, a number of a different yuccas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's a banana yucca that produces a really nice fruit. It looks like a banana, and when it is ripe... It is so sweet and so good. And then the agave, which looks like a yucca but different, that was, again, a staple food. The agave is called the century plant. They thought it only bloomed once in every 100 years. It turns out it blooms after 30 or 40 years, but it basically puts all of its energy into one bloom at the end of its life. And then they make these 20-foot-tall flower stems. They're really impressive. So if you catch it right before it puts that stem up, it's got a huge energy source that it has been storing for years and years. And so the natives would learn where they were at, dig them up, break everything off of them, really hard work, dig a big old pit, put them all in the pit. The women would gather it and the men would dig the pit, if I remember right. And the thing is, there's enough food in there to feed your family for a good part of the year. There are huge, giant, underground sources of food energy. It's called an agave heart. And how would I know when it's getting ready to send that shoot up? This is a thing that they learned, that folks learned back in the old days. There are certain tricks. You you look for an opening in the middle of the agave. It starts to open and make a flat spot. Normally, it's full of these big spiky leaves. But there, there'll be a, an opening. You'll start to see a flat spot where it's getting ready to send that shoot up. So that's, what, that's one of the things they teach, and it, people would all know how to spot that. But it is kind of a, a skill. And that is the key indicator that it's time to harvest. There's seed. several that I don't even remember. <laughs> they dig up the whole agave? Yeah, yeah. You dig it all out of the ground. And keep in mind, these are folks that didn't have picks and jackhammers. No. <laughs> they, they, and so this is hard work. But the reward is you feed your family really well. Interesting. And then what's a chaya seed? Chia. Chia, chia pet? Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Well, there's a native chia plant in the desert. So. And, this is a tasty seed. It's the exact same chia seed you buy it in the store. And really crunchy, really good nutty flavor, and a whole lot of nutrients. And you actually have a category on here for weeds? Yes. I love teaching about the edible weeds because you don't have to go into the desert. Everyone has weeds popping up in their yard, and they hate them. Why not turn that into something you love and... Just for example, what's starting to come up right now in the summer is purslane, and it's a little succulent plant that tastes lemony, and I throw that in pickle juice. Anything's good in pickle juice. And it's just like a relish, a pickle relish. 
And then there's mallow. Mallow and London Rocket are cool weather plants, but I make mallow chips, and there's just like kale chips. And London Rocket, you can throw it into a salad or make a pesto. But tumbleweed, the last one that I have here, is the first weed that I ever ate. Yes, you can eat tumbleweed if it's young. You can trim the tips and saute it or dry it and grind it into a flower. It's very nutritious. I do need to jump in and put a warning out there. There is an app that you can get for your phone called Seek, S-E-E-K. Before you eat anything out of the desert, before you forage anything from a forest, make sure you know what you're eating. We're not suggesting that you go out and eat things out of the desert, but if you're gonna do that, make sure you know what you're eating. It's urbanfarm.org, and if somebody wanted to sign up for the mesquite milling, it's urbanfarmevents.com, where they can go learn how to get signed up for the mesquite farming. And you'll be here next talking about Plan Your Water. We're going to be talking all about water, water harvesting. Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm, thank you. Peggy Sue Sorensen and Mike Clow of the DesertKitchen.net. Thank y'all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.